Alan Smith, real chance! Oh, Alan Smith! It's Smith. He's going to go and win it back fairly. He might get a goal for it, he does. That's Alan Smith for you. Skill to finish it off, but strength and determination to reclaim an apparently lost ball. Alan Smith is the man on the spot again for Manchester United. And he just can't stop scoring goals in a Manchester United shirt. Smith turned and hit one. Oh, he scored a terrific goal. That is fabulous from Alan Smith. A goal to light up the face of his new boss and to ensure his popularity at his new home. Old Trafford is now home to a Yorkshireman and his name is Alan Smith. Welcome to another Manchester United podcast. I'm Sam Homewood. With me are Helen Evans and David May. Guys, you right? All good, mate. All good, Sam. Thank you. Lovely. Uh, we've got a very good podcast today because we're going to be joined by someone who I think is a cult figure at the club who perhaps not the greatest footballer that's ever been at Manchester United, but certainly one of the most loved, especially by our producer for the day, Heidi, who has worked at MUTV for years and is very, very, very excited to have... Mm-hmm. Um, to have him on the show. Yeah. Yes, Heidi has always loved Alan Smith and so have the fans. Yeah, and she's actually got makeup on to see him. I love that. <laughs> so nice. Being professional. Um, Maisie, obviously you didn't share a picture of Alan Smith, but he was like a proper sort of... He was like a throwback, wasn't he, as a centre forward? Yeah. Because he was so committed, all blood and thunder and red cards and big headers and elbows and bleeding faces and kissing the badge. And what were your opinions of him when he was playing? Uh, before, well, I remember him at Leeds being a horrible person to play play against. The fact that he came to United was the epitome that that it's not just about skill and all that sort of stuff. It's about actually loving the club you play for, working hard. And do you know what? Having spoke to him, you know, maybe a dozen times now over the years, you actually understand what a lovely lad he is. So down to earth and just a genuine, genuine nice person. This will be something special. I know it will. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should ask him about his hair? You love asking people about their haircuts. Well, I feel like his hair this was quite like... iconic, wasn't it? Everybody, everybody's thinking what Alan Smith, everybody knows what his haircut was. He stuck with it the whole way through his career as well, didn't he? Well, his top flight career. Then he went long, didn't he? Long hair yeah. after that. He did have a shaved Oh, here we go. Here's Heidi oh. filling us in. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Who's this? Go on, Heidi. What did he have? He had a shaved head at one point. Did he? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, shall we ask him about hairstyles, Sam? That's definitely a you question, so you decide on that one. Yeah. See if, if it feels right, I'll ask him. Yeah, if the moment's right. Simon, leave it out. <laughs> A lot of people have been sending me messages that start with Simon. Yes. I love it. Simple. Maisie, have you been replying to people properly? Uh, as much as I can, yes. Because someone tweeted me to say, I left a review, I screenshotted it, sent it to David May, didn't get my personal reply, I just got a like. Yeah, because I liked it. Yeah, but they, you promised that you would give personal replies. No, you promised. Yeah, but on his behalf. I never said anything to him. <laughs> right, let's get on with it. Yeah, we've been sidetracked. Yeah. Cheers, Simon. So here he is. Uh, We'll dial up Orlando and sit down virtually with Alan Smith. That was quite good. Welcome to the podcast, Alan Smith. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yourselves? Good. Yes, all good. All good, mate. Very good. We've had lots of requests for you on the podcast, so we are delighted that you are here with us today. Thank you very much. I wanted to do it earlier on. Um, Obviously... 
the situation all over the world caused a few problems for everyone. So as I say, it's nice to nice to finally get on the podcast and see your guys' faces. It's been a while, so it's nice to be back. Smudge, we tried actually delaying it for another six months <laughs> so we could actually come out and see you, spend a bit of time in Florida. You can if you want, mate. Anytime you anytime you pass it. Once they open flights, you'll be all right. My mum and dad can't even get out a minute, so we're struggling. <laughs> You're more than welcome any any time, mate. Any time when flights are open, it's not bad from Manchester straight in. I'll pick you up. We can do this live instead of going through going through computer. Right, let's just sack it here then. Well, we could do a part one and a part two. Part part one, yeah. part two. We'll yeah. do a part one and part two. We'll do the virtual part one, and then we'll do a physical part two where you can give us a tour of Orlando. My career wasn't good enough for that. I've only got one part. There's eight. There's lots to talk about. But, for the people that are listening that maybe don't know what you're doing now, yeah. for those that watch this on MUTV, they'll, they'll know what I can see. But for those that aren't, you are incredibly tanned. Yeah, um, I moved out to Florida and obviously I started working with Excel uh, Sports World and we started his own soccer academy. So it's non-residential and we partnered with a private school, which is just a mile down the road, who provided us access to teachers. So they actually come on site every day we have the boys out 8 30 till 10 30 which is ninth grade and above which would be high school high school kids back home so between 12 and 18 year old and then we have a younger group which is sixth grade which are predominantly 10 11 years old i'm fortunate enough to like say be still involved in soccer in in a great way in a great city and as i say i've got I'm sure i've got better weather than back in manchester Called it soccer there. Soccer now, yeah. yeah I was just going to ask well, you the that. Same thing, didn't we? I always, we, um, I've always called it soccer from being a little kid, though. Really? If I were going, I'd just say, yeah, if I were playing with my brother, I'd always say, oh, we're going to go have a game of soccer. I don't know where that big hoo-ha about, oh, it's football and soccer, or, yeah, I don't know where, I don't know, Maisie probably did the same, I don't know, it's just, we do call it soccer. I don't really know, I, it's just one game that we always played, it doesn't really need need a name, does it? Need a name, true. It's just true. needs a ball. It's very true, yeah. Um, so, should we start at the very beginning? Yep, let's do that. What was early life like for you? What, what are your what are your earliest memories and things? In general, or soccer-wise, my background was not soccer-related whatsoever um, from being a young kid. My dad used to race motocross. Uh, me and my brother used to race BMX. And soccer was never something that really caught his attention just because, like you say, my dad didn't play football and we were solely into motorbike racing, BMX racing, any kind of motorsport, really. It was only sort of when my brother started playing at around 12, 13 years old that I actually started getting involved in playing. And that was only playing with his mates who were all older, which I think down the line when I look back, it probably helped me so much without even realising because you're getting kicked and you're having to run a bit kick quicker and kick bigger lads, older lads. So when you finally grow to that age, then you're overpowering everybody else. How much younger are you than him then? Four years. Four years, right. Yeah, four years. So, as I say, just playing in the street and playing, I always were playing with older lads all the time, which I think gave me an advantage and raises your expectations because if you're not very good, then you don't play. No. Quite late though, isn't it, to be introduced um, to playing? Because most people that we talk to have been kicking a ball around since they can walk. But for you, you probably didn't start till, what, eight or nine then? Yeah, like nine, probably nine, ten was like mm-hmm. when I first... I remember World Cup Italia 90 really been my first insight into thinking, I love that, like that's something that 
I enjoy doing. Obviously, I remember Gaza and obviously the penalties and all that kind of stuff. That was my first real involvement in watching football and actually really getting into it and enjoying it as much as as much as I, as I did forever, to be honest. And I think that because I wasn't, and this is my apprehension now sometimes, that kids start at five, six, seven-year-old, and by the time they get to 18, they're a little bit like, I've had enough of this. Especially if it's been highs and lows and ups and downs. I think sometimes, like you say, they start so early because they want the development to be so quick that by the time they get to a point where it's time to really nail down and get involved in it, they're actually looking over their shoulders thinking I've been involved for probably a little bit too long. Hmm. I remember I got a copy of the United magazine when I was, I don't know, probably a teenager or something. And I'm sure you did a photo shoot where you were actually on a BMX through the article. Yeah. And in that, you said you would have added, as a child, you would rather have been a professional in bikes or like in some biking discipline as opposed to football. Yeah. At what point did that change? For me, I think the big turning point for a lot of people, and I think it's still the same now, like... I try and emphasise that up until 12, 13, soccer needs to be, and football in general, needs to be fun, learning without really thinking, this is what I've got to be. Like, even, I don't know if Maze is similar. Like, I never really thought about, I'm going to be a professional. It would never, even when I went in as a YT, it was a little bit like, I was just doing it because I loved it. It wasn't because you saw, oh, this is what I want to achieve because of, X, Y, and Z. It were more, you did it because you loved the sport yeah. and you didn't want to go and do a normal job. Let's be honest. If you could play a footy player or you had to go work down pit or go be a plasterer or a plumber or a builder, you'd want to go and play footy. So it was a case of, for me, it was never a case of all. And I think because of media now, people see the rewards that you can get through playing. Yeah. And sometimes they don't love it. And I think you'll see that over time. I, th- I think I think now they just yeah they just look at the I think you see a lot of parents that way as well yeah over I totally here. agree you know, with you, yeah I'm, I'm I'm pretty much like you smudge I just think at times let the kids enjoy it yeah you know you hear Definitely. them on the sidelines barking out orders just let them enjoy it the thing is Maisie as well like you just alluded to then it's a bit like they have everything like and it's it's not a bad thing but for me it's like what is the reward when you get into to be a YT or you get to be a first team player where you're going like there's kids at seven, eight, nine year old who've got all the gear all the bags all the equipment all the boots like they've got absolutely everything that you can possibly give them and the clubs do that because they want them all to look professional and they want, but it's like my big worry is and I experienced it and you probably did yourself Maisie at a certain extent it's what about the lads? So when I were playing for Notts County on MK Don towards the end of my career, it was because I still loved it. Yeah. I saw lads come from the bigger clubs who'd had incredible training facilities, incredible surfaces to play on, all the equipment, the kits, everything you could imagine. They'd come to Notts County and they'd be like, we don't get anything. We take his own kit to wash it. The training grounds, like not great, the facilities aren't great, cold showers, all that kind of stuff. But they've never experienced that because they've been in the environment of the top, top level. So it's like you see them drop down and drop down, then they just completely disappear. Because we had the grounding of going in with YTs when you're younger and going through the process of growing up. The growing up process where you've got to be a character 
we'll probably go back to it later on, but the biggest thing I found, even growing up at Leeds and then the step to Man United, it's like, you know, going to United yourself, you were a big character. And you know, the bigger the club for me, the bigger the personalities that are going to be in that club to handle the pressures that come with it. And it's not, mm-hmm. I try and tell these here, it's not always based on your, your general ability. It's an all-rounded of your ability, your character, your passion and your commitment gets you to... Because everyone's ability, once they get to that level, all just seems to come to a head. Like, everyone's very similar. Yeah, There's the exceptions to the rule, obviously, but most players are all very similar in what they can do and their ability and their speed and everything else. So it's like, what's going to give you the advantage further down the line? And were we lucky that our upbringings brought big characteristics from us grounding so then we could go to a club like Manchester United and fit in with all the big personalities especially when you were there Maisie the personalities and towards and when I went there obviously them personalities were getting a little bit older but when you went there you had obviously winning the Champions League etc the personalities within the club were always like the big big personalities and I think that's what it takes to succeed especially with all the criticism and the like the media stuff that comes within a professional now. Most kids, like you say, they see all the rewards, but they don't want to put the graft in at this end to actually see what the rewards are when or to benefit from the rewards as well. So I think football's serious enough to actually have that period of time where it can be fun to start off with. I think that's one of my most enjoyable answers I've ever listened to in the podcast. Yeah, it was great, wasn't that it? It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I've just had a little boy nine months ago, so I'm like taking all this in on. Because <laughs> well, obviously I'm going to sign him up for toddler football. <laughs> yeah, that, but it's like, like what me and Maisie are saying there means that, yeah, sign him up for doing, but like the all-rounded stuff as well. Because we used to play every sport yeah. as kids growing up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just all, like I think now majority of kids, and especially even here, in the US, it's a case of like people do club football, individual stuff with certain coaches. They do like the team stuff, they do the school stuff. It's like it is all, I'd say it's 99% mm-hmm. one sport dominant, which then it kills you because if that sport fails, then you've got nothing else. Then you're not an all rounded athlete to be able to cope with the demands that um, football puts on you. Mm-hmm. What was it that drew you to football? Like, was there, because I know you said your dad raced bikes, but yeah. was he also a football fan or was your mum into football? How did you end up becoming so involved in it? I think going to middle school, like to primary school, when people wear football shirts, yeah. like the start, the buzz about what you join formations and kits and all that in the back of your jotter and it's a little bit like you start <laughs> learning about formations and all stuff like that. And then, like, I think everybody who's involved in football to a good level, is slightly addicted to what they do. Like it becomes slight obsession for a lot of people. And it's a case of once you go through middle school and you start playing, then you go to high school, it just takes it to that next level. I was lucky. I'm from a city with it's one club in a big city, and most people are surrounded by that. Most families are involved in either going to watch, watching it on TV, whatever it is. Most people you see are passionate about the club. So you quickly learn the history of what the club was, the fundamentals of it. And I go back to, and I say to all the kids now, are we producing players for the club or are we just producing generalisation of players? And before I came over here, I spoke to a lot of people at the FA and they did the 
DNA of an international football player, which, don't get me wrong, is great. But if you're in Manchester City's academy or teams who play in a certain way, are you only learning that certain style to play for that one club? Mm. Which then, as we alluded to, if you fall out of that and you have to go to the bottom end of the championship and you've come through Man City's youth system who play out front back and get people in pockets and then you're having to go, listen, we've got to stay up on last day and we've got to go route one. Well, as a manager who's reliant upon his players to get him results, the player, unfortunately, who can only go to feet and play pretty is going to get left out. Mm -hmm. I were lucky because I knew, and I think back then, the way that Leeds played, Man United played, Blackburn played, whoever it was, was very, very similar in the style. There wasn't that big change in certain philosophies or styles that people played. It was all played very similar. And I think a lot of players now or young players now would struggle to go, as I said, from a top, top club team in the Premier League to drop down to a lower league, League One or League Two team because of the actual contrast in the systems. When did you realise you was good, Al? And I even look back now and think, I watched some games, mate, when... And I never used to watch games that I played, and I watched some games and think, like, what were we even? What are even that good? Like my biggest, <laughs> like my <laughs> biggest strength was just being full on, mate. Like, hundred percent committed, doing your best, running through a brick wall for someone. And I was, I feel like I was so lucky with my grounding and my upbringing at Leeds that even when I went to Man United on a bigger level, the characteristics of the clubs are very, very similar. Yeah. The people who were involved in the club, we had a lot of, obviously, British influence, Scottish influence with Eddie Grays and people like that who historically at the club demanded, like, first and foremost, 100% work rate and effort. And the fans even demanded, all working class fans, Blackburn fans, Leeds fans, Man United fans, they all demand the least that you've got is everything you're going to give us. Like... And that's what people want to see. Even Man United, who, like you say, are on the next level, the fans still want to see working-class players who want to work hard for the club. That is the basic fundamental. And anything more than you can give them is great. But for me, like that was always my main thing. I wanted to win every game, sometimes to my own detriment. I just wanted to play and enjoy it and be as good as I could possibly be. And it's a case of... I don't ever think I look back and thought, oh, we're good, or yeah. oh, this, or that. And only when you retire sometimes do people say, oh, you did well, or you played for the, and you go, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I don't think you understand job, it yourself sometimes. Yeah, yeah it's like, it's just your job. for you, you won Champions League. And it's like, I think you don't really, even for lads who've won seven, eight championships, I'd like, I still find that like so incredible that like, the generation of players that the club had at that time just won it, put it to the back of the mind. Won it again, put it to the back of the mind. Mm. Like, you've seen even now, it's so difficult to have repeat success. Is like just something I don't ever think will probably be ever emulated by a group of players ever again. And I think that that just speaks volumes for, as I say, the people involved in the club at that time. And not just the players, but the staff and not all the support team that goes with it the biggest thing like I say for me that I found when I went to from Leeds to Manchester was that the collective togetherness was just and I don't know if yourself found it maybe when you went that like the togetherness of the club was just like incredible yeah. whether you was 
an important part of the team, whether you were on the fringes of the team, whether you're a young player, it was like everyone was important as a next person. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was something that was a big change for me, although the fundamentals were the same, like the importance of everybody involved in the club were just massive. Yeah, I, th- I think a big part of that was obviously Sir Alex. Yeah. But but I don't think, I've, I've said it many times on here now, I don't think you win anything with a dismantled dressing room. No. And when you walk into that dressing room, you realise, Jesus, this is... Well, that's what my biggest... Were you? Did you win it at Blackburn or was that I before? Didn't. I, I left the year they won yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. So we had some big characters at Leeds when I was there. Good, good players, like top players. And I know Kino said about like Bats and Speedo and people like that who were good, good players. We had Olivier Decourt who were good, experienced players, Nigel Martin. And I always thought to myself when I was at Leeds, like we went close a few times. We finished second to yourselves a couple of times and we went semi-final at Champions League and I was like, it's hard to put like, put it in perspective or to find out what's missing to get to that level of how do they keep getting over that line? Like winners, <laughs> it's like it's difficult to like, like I look even I look back now and think like what drives them lads to make sure they get over that line every time? And for me, that was the biggest, the biggest difference was the experienced players just asked that much more of each other to keep. And all different personalities. Mm. Keeney's, Giggs's, Scholes's, Nev's. All different, totally different personalities, but with an inner desire to be the best. I think, like you say, getting a group together like that, there's only been a few teams over the years that have managed, even over the history of football as I know it, a few teams that have managed to actually get to that level. And like you say, I think everyone's still searching to try and to try and find that again. Mm-hmm. Mm. You obviously spent your youth career um, at Leeds, winning the Youth Cup. I think yep. that was 1997. Yeah. And then it was um, in 2004 yep. is when the Leeds fans were informed that you were making the move to Manchester United. Obviously, that's been documented well over the yep. years. But tell us what that was like for you. Um, it, it was an interesting time, obviously. A difficult time, only based on the fact that Leeds had been relegated. Yeah. I think it's, you were crying on the pitch, weren't you, before on the last uh, episode? Yeah, I think it's been shown a few times since I got promoted. Yeah, yeah. just bring it embarrassing me a little bit. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> we'll no, not no. show the pictures. <laughs> well, I, uh, to be honest, I didn't really care. I, I loved playing for Leeds. It was my boyhood club. And like I said, I was gutted. Simple, simple as that. And you can't hold back your emotions if it, if it means so much to you. Yeah. Um, and like I said, the decision or if it has to be a decision to sign for Manchester United, it's like, like you say, it's been well documented, the Leeds-Man United rivalry, but 16 years on is the first time they're going to play each other in a real competitive game other than a few FA Cups or Carling Cup ties. So for me, it wasn't even a rivalry anymore. If you're not in the same league as someone, I don't really see how it can be a rivalry. And you'd be doing yourself a disservice, I think, if you took the easy option and didn't sign for arguably at that time the biggest club in the world mm-hmm. can you remember the build up to that Al? of how you actually to found out it. well to how you found out um, I spoke to Sir Alex on the FA Cup final day when they were playing Millwall down at Wembley it was Cardiff wasn't it Cardiff sorry yeah it was Cardiff United were playing Millwall on the Saturday and I was I was at home and he ran did you know that was going to happen no 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 <laughs> there'd been talk of me signing in January and I spoke to Sir Alex in January about it and said, 
I couldn't leave in January just because I wanted to try and keep Leeds up. Mm-hmm. And they went and they signed Louis Saha from Fulham. So I just thought, That's dead good. and buried, obviously, they won't want me because they've signed Louis, so, which were fair enough. And he went on fire at time and, as I say, such a great player. He probably could still play now if he wanted to. And so I didn't really think much about it, to be honest. I just continued batting on, trying to do as best I could to try and keep Leeds up. Fortunately, we didn't. And then there were talk of other clubs being interested and I never spoke to any other club about going there. The club had told me they were interested from Newcastle and Middlesbrough and a few Everton and a few other clubs, Liverpool. And it was just, I think Liverpool had just, they didn't have a manager at the time. I think Rafa Benitez had just left or he was just coming in. And then, as I say, Sir Alex ran. And I made my decision there and then, basically, without consulting anybody else. You're just like, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think at times like that, though, and I've never been a selfish person in terms of where I've played and stuff like that. I'd always sacrifice myself for everybody else. And I thought, I've got to do the right thing for me through disappointment. And like you say, it wasn't through lack of effort or commitment. It was, just, it was through we weren't good enough to stay up. And at the end of the day, it's a case of other players had left the season before on free transfers and gone elsewhere. And I was probably one of only two or three who were still left at the club that had been there previously. And there were a lot spoke about the club in terms of the financial stuff. And I don't really like to go into that because I don't want to make any excuse for signing for Man United because at the end of the day, that were a total football-based decision from my point of view, mm-hmm. from the club's point of view. It was more of a financial decision in terms of the destination for me. So I think it all lined up perfectly. Didn't you sacrifice your the like the the transfer fee you were due from Leeds for that move? Yeah, well, I still I still had five years left on my on my contract yeah. at the club, and yeah, I waived that. Which like I said, at that moment in time, as a kid, you're not well, not a kid, but 23, 24, you want to do is play football as well as you can at the highest mm-hmm. level, and. People make a big deal out of stuff like that, but Maisie's done it himself. It's not really a decision based on anything other than a pure football decision. And in the back of your mind, you know you're doing the best thing for the club that you leave it. Because for me, the biggest disappointing thing that I get is that everyone looks at it and goes, oh, you left to go to Man United. Well, for me, that's a step up. You're going, we've been relegated. That's a step up. For me, there's been players that have left and gone to lesser clubs or clubs not as big as Leeds United and everyone's gone, oh, they're all right. Well, for me, it's, that's the wrong way around. Yeah. For anybody who comes through an academy or their academy from 10 years old and leaves to go to arguably one of the biggest clubs in the world, that should be commended by the people who've worked mm-hmm. with you. Not, it didn't matter to me because at the end of the day, we're used to criticism, we're used to the stick that we get, but I felt for the people in the background who had coached me when I was 11, 12, 13, Paul Hart, Eddie Gray, who'd put time into you to make you a better player, that ultimately all their hard work, because you end up going to a certain club, it all gets diminished in naturally. They don't really speak about it. Yeah, it's like a bit like the elephant in the room, oh yeah, Alan Smith went to Man United, we don't really want to talk about that. It's like... They should be looking at that and think we produced a player from ten year old to arguably go to the biggest club in the world. Like that should be recognised, not for me, but for them. Yeah. Rather than hid under a bushel because they're scared of the Man United Leeds connection. Well it's not a big deal. Did you did, did you speak to them about that, Al? I spoke to the coaches before. I spoke to Eddie and I spoke to Paul Hart 
and they were both of the thing with football major you know like everyone knows everyone yeah. Sir Alex knows Eddie Gray because the Scottish and yeah. all the coaching staff know each other and when I went to Man United I realised that because they were like oh yeah we spoke to so and so about you we spoke to him about your personality traits we spoke to him about your discipline so you're going although people want to put it as a rivalry and for me rivalry is great yeah. that's what you want like the first game that Leeds fans will look for when they're promoted is when are we playing Man United because it's a rivalry and rivalries should be embraced it's like Man United look for Liverpool straight away when we're playing them. Like, because it's a rivalry that people want, which people want to watch games where there's big games. And you know, you send me, is it like Man United, Liverpool, it's a completely different environment to when you're playing against anyone else. Yeah. Like, the intensity just goes, whoa, it lifts because, and that's what it's like being a Leeds player playing against United. It's like the rivalry goes, everyone, intensity rises. There's something different about them games. And, that's what should be embraced about the clubs, not the always the negative side of, oh, yeah, we don't like them, we don't like them, we don't like them. The rivalries are great for the people involved in it. And if you're a player involved in it, it's completely different as if you're a fan. Yeah. What about, what about your mates? I don't have any anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They, um, They're all still in Leeds. Yeah, yeah. No, to be fair, I was more concerned about my brother and my family and all my rest of my family, but they understood it. Yeah. My dad went into local booze that he goes to and said, listen, I'll sign him for Man United on Wednesday. He said, you were my mates before. If you don't want, I don't want to hear all about it. You have my mates now because he's gone. Oh, you don't bother. He said, I'm like, <laughs> get, get over it. Yeah. People, are, people are realistic, Maisie, aren't they? Of course it's they. like, they understand. Yeah. It's like normal people doing a normal job. And if you take football into that category, you've got to look at it in perspective and think about it realistically. You know the passion that both clubs have got. And that's why I love playing for both clubs, just because mm. they're very, very similar. And Leeds fans don't like me for saying it, but they are. The characteristics for both clubs are very, very similar in terms of the beliefs, the history of the clubs, the people who are involved in it, the styles, like the passion of the fans is very, very similar. And I think that's why it made me transition quite easy in that first year. Mm. And you're surrounded by world-class players which makes it a little bit easier Easy. <laughs> 19th of December sorry that's whenever we will play Leeds just for anybody listening that is thinking when is that fixture 19th of December oh yeah nice Leeds have got an e- I think Leeds have got an easy run then I think they've got Man City Man United and Liverpool all within mm. some kind of Christmas December period, January yeah, yeah. Enjoy that I read a um, I've read a Leeds fan I was on a Leeds fan forum website of some sort earlier reading what uh, yeah i was i was i want to do some research and uh, there was a there was a whole there was this huge article that someone had written as an appraisal of not your time at leeds but your exit and it yeah. basically says what you're saying now that actually 16 years on they can look back and say this is i think the only player certainly at the time to win leeds fans player of the year twice in a row and that you gave them everything you didn't leave when everyone else was leaving in january you didn't down tools you fought to the very last game and they basically sort of said like the club was being relegated you didn't deserve to be relegated and that as in you personally and that they yep. should have been happier for you but they just couldn't and and essentially the, the summary was that they would have been happy for you at any club Anywhere in the world else. Except yeah. Manchester United. But would I have been happy? Well, exactly <laughs> it, yeah. Did, does it bother you how they reacted? Not really, no, because I expected it. Yeah. And I'd been through it myself. I was a kid when Eric left to go to United, and I was probably one of them 
when he came back throwing stones at Team Bus when he came. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that an exclusive? Do you remember that? I don't, I don't think I, I did. I just, yeah, amazing, mate. I didn't put his window through. But, but you understand what I mean in terms of like... Yeah. And Re- I was there as a player, obviously, when Rio left. Yeah. And I think it was a little bit different for me because I was one of their own players, mm. if you put it in that perspective. I'd been there from 10 years old. So it was big for them that I chose the destination that I did. But as I look at it, like I just spoke up on there, they should be actually proud of one of their own young players going on to whatever destination it was in terms of the calibre of club that you go to. Bigger and better things. That should not be forgotten because it's a Leeds-Man United rivalry. Mm. And I think that, like you said, it didn't really bother me because it was a decision that I made purely based on the good of Leeds financially and myself footballing-wise. Let's move on from Leeds. Let's talk about United a bit more. Arriving at the club, forgetting about the rivalry and all that, what was it like coming into the dressing room when you first arrived? It was amazing, to be honest, because it was something that I've always... The kind of environment, the atmosphere to go in is something that I'd always wanted. It was intense... It were full on every day training. The standard just rose and rose and rose and rose. And I think that you start to realise that you can get more out of yourself just because of the other people that you're surrounded by. And just for me, it's fascinating because, like I said, I'd been a kid watching Premier League football with the names playing and seeing them doing so well. And then you're in a in a dressing room with them. And for me, I wanted to. I would probably used to do the heads in because I used to just ask questions after questions about to obviously the experienced players about like getting better, improving, like all that kind of stuff. And for me, it was a real education of the drive that they've got and how they just keep producing result after result after result was something that always just stayed with me, even to now. Like I think about it sometimes, like how do you try and replicate that? And what is it that deep inside all these players drives them on all the time? So for me, going into that environment, it's a case of you've got a make your mark as early as possible and make sure you get in there mucking with lads and just make yourself like you say just make yourself you can answer make yourself I don't know what it is I feel like we're Heidi ringing me (laughs) (laughs) brilliant make yourself as involved as possible as early as possible just get yourself in there I remember we went on a pre-season trip to New York and it was a case of just getting to know all lads as soon as you could and I, like you say, I was probably boring all the older players because I wanted to sit with them at dinner and ask all questions as to what was going on. And I was lucky at time because there were some great experienced players that I could ask questions to and learn so much off. Was it a welcoming dressing room? Yeah, I think so, yeah, definitely. It's a business dressing room, isn't it? They want to get down to mm-hmm. working straight away and making sure that we get what we need. Like, are we getting a player who's fully in- involved in what we're doing and where we're going? Mm-hmm. And I think... They want people to replicate. Well, they want you to get involved, like I said, and talk line, and this is what we're going to try and achieve. And this is what we're going to try and achieve together. And this is not where you've been previously, regardless of whatever club it was. I think anybody coming in from any club would have known that, that the intensity they train with and play with and everything's done so professionally that you either embrace that or you get pushed to one side. There must have been some very big tackles, like Wes and Vida and stuff. Must have been flying in. Yeah, always. 
there were a few going in. I'd not the the good thing about it as well. I'd already know. I knew some lads from a few England squad that had been in, and I knew Wes from being fourteen because we were both at Lillyshaw together. And Wes used to look after me even when I was back then, so he just took that upon board himself anyway. Uh, I obviously I'm not sure Wes could look after anyone, but <laughs> <laughs> he struggles looking after himself. Yeah, no, he was probably concerned about looking after me. That's why. <laughs> and then obviously I knew Rio from his time at Leeds. Although it were only briefly. I think, like Maisie said, getting in that dressing room with big characters, you can either sink or swim a lot of the time, I believe. Mm. Mm. And I don't even think a lot of the decisions or the lot of... I don't think a lot of people going in there, it would be the actual ability that they'd struggle with. I think it would be... Characters. characters yeah. That they'd struggle to deal with the intensity of... If you give one ball away, they're on you straight away. Or like... You just get that look from Giggsy when he plays one round corner and you've gone in behind and you're going, oh no. <laughs> it's like, and the different, like I said, different characteristics of different people. People shouting at you for giving ball away or people just looking at you going, come on, you've got to come to a party. And it's like, I was lucky, I think, straight away. We had Community Shield, then we had um, Champions League qualifiers. So I got a few games early and there's not like playing games mm. to get you involved in the camaraderie at lads. So it was an environment I loved. And I said it was so demanding and so intense that it was something that I'd always wanted. Is that what you found the most uh, or the biggest difference coming from Leeds training where yeah. maybe the intensity wasn't as high or the players weren't as good? Because that's what I remember. I remember my first, tra- first three or four training sessions, I'm thinking, Jesus, this is serious. <laughs> this is Because United have just come off the double. And I'm thinking, yeah. wow, can I cope with this? Can I, can, can I handle the pressures? And your mind's thinking all the time. Can you do it? Yeah, it is the demands, like you say, because at certain clubs, you know you said, like there's intensity and there's training and there's levels and then there's other levels. And it's like, that's the next level because mm. once or twice you miscontrol it and give ball away at other clubs, they'll probably let you away with it. Yeah. Like, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And I think sometimes lads knew that and they'd test your characteristics. I'm sure they'd do it on purpose sometimes and said, Absolutely. fire a few women, see if you can get out of that. Yeah. And then they see the different characters, who can handle it, who's prepared to take it, because come big games, when you need relying on, they need to know they can rely on. Mm. And I think, like you alluded to there, Maisie, it's like there is the difference in terms of the demands that people put on you every single day. And I think that that was the biggest difference. Because you played with good players at Blackburn, I played with good players at Leeds, but that next step up is the, like you say, de la the creme. big challenge. Yeah. You can sink or swim. Yeah. Was your your uh, proper debut, I guess, was the Charity Shield? Yes, my... Yeah, well, yeah. Is it a friendly or is it... Yeah. I don't know. But it sort of it half was, counts, yeah. doesn't it? But you... Yeah. Uh, we lost, but you scored. And... Yeah. What was that like? How did that feel? It wasn't really great because we got beat, but it was in terms of... Like, to get off to a good start, it's always, always nice at a new club. But I think when you go into Man United, I remember speaking to the manager at the time and... I don't think you were really bothered about the goal ratio. You were more bothered about getting back to winning. Mm-hmm. If you're a player at Man United and you're scoring, if we're not winning, then collectively we're not we're not doing what we should do. Mm. And I think that I think when I first signed, he alluded back to Mark Hughes a few times in saying he'd only get us 10, 12 goals a season, but they were always important. And the job that he did for the team were more vital than just his goals. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that always stuck with me about in terms of defending from the front, obviously back to goal, bringing other people in, which is demands that, as I say, makes you a better player. 
is demands that make sure that your first thought is, listen, I've got to get out of this ball and bring someone else into play. Not always about, oh, what's my goal output? So, like I say, it was nice to get off to a goal against Arsenal, but the defeat made it a little bit, little bit more difficult. I think some of the some of the play you've just talked about. I mean, when you were at Leeds, fans loved it, and equally so when you were at United. Did you enjoy being like a fan's favourite? Did you feel like you had that kind of relationship with the fans? Because often new signings at United, there's a lot of players that people already love. So maybe it takes a bit of time before people start paying too much attention to what you're doing because they're already so invested in somebody else. But people seem to take you to their hearts straight away. I think like I spoke about early on though, I think there's a way that certain players come across. Carlos Tevez, a prime example, is work rate. Hmm. Wayne Rooney is another prime example of a forward player who plays with that intensity. And we speak about passion and stuff like that. I think intensity is a great word for what fans want to see. Whether that's coming on for 15 minutes, starting a game, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And I always say about how effective are you? Not about how many skills you've got, how, how effective are you in a game? And how can you put yourself into a game situation to make yourself effective? And I think that from a striker's point of view, and Maisie will tell you from a defender's point of view, there's no worse if you're charging stuff down all the time and making it so difficult for a defender, not yeah. giving them any breathers. Tackling from front helps everybody in your team as well. And I think that that endears you to fans because sometimes they don't expect that. I think people think about signing for a big, big club and think about someone who needs all the skills, dribbling around people, doing that. But... I think playing for Man United, as I spoke about, is very similar to what the demands were at Leeds in terms of the fans want to see you run through a brick wall for them. When you say you used to go and ask the senior players questions, what kind of questions would you have been asking them? Who would you be asking? Yeah, and who? I used to sit with Keeney and Giggsy and obviously I knew Butty and Nev and stuff from being at England as well. And it was a case of I'd, I don't really know what I'd be asking, but I'd always want to know, you want their approval. If you not, mm. if you understand what I mean, like they're the ones that you sat with thinking, if I can gain approval off Akini and a Gigsy, then you're not going far wrong because they're honest players, the ones who you'd want to do well for, like you'd want to be someone who they knew they could rely on you when times are hard or when it's difficult, and just tapping into obviously they'll tell stories about when they were younger, what they used to get up to, trying to learn from what they'd been through as well because. Mm. Obviously, I've never been a drinker or whatever else, and it's like trying to sort of tap into sort of how can I try and make myself better in every way, shape or form because the first time I'd lived on my own when I moved to Manchester, and I used to have to go pick Fletch up every morning to drive him in because he couldn't drive. And like <laughs> just getting to know people and making sure that you weren't... Just making sure you went into it head on and made sure that you got to know people and tried to build relationships up with people as soon as possible. Actually, what I was asking were probably all football-related questions as to how should I live my life, really, and what is the best things that I could be doing because they had all the experience of doing it. Roy Keane actually said that about you in his book, didn't he, that you didn't drink and you were the only two that were actually able to hold a conversation at the end of the night. <laughs> Maybe that was a secret. You just watched what everybody was doing and then you what? had all those little secrets. Pardon? Smudge, smudge, yeah. Keeney. Yeah, because he said he'd sobered <laughs> up by the, end of the, by the end of the night. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> Is that true? Like, Can you vouch for that? <laughs> but when Keeney was sober, man, he used to tell me all the stories that you all used to get up to. <laughs> so it was even funnier. Yeah, he's... And like you say, I think you'll know, people go into a dressing room and 
everyone's normal lads who've had a normal back upbringing. Yeah. So we've all been in similar situations. And that's the thing that I always speak to the kids about. The best players who I've ever played with have always been the nicest people. Mm-hmm. Just the great lads as well as great players. And that's the one thing that, like I said, going from a Leeds to a Man United and you have you think about, oh, what's he going to be like? What's so-and-so going to be like? Driving across a car thinking, oh my God, going to sign for Man United tomorrow. I wonder what so-and-so is going to be like. And it's like, you get there and you go, well, they're just normal lads. Yeah, and I think that that's what, that's why they did so well because there were actually normal lads who pushed each other to levels that no one else could get to. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have moments on the pitch? I don't, I haven't asked anybody else this and I don't know that I would but I feel like I can ask you. I'm looking forward to this. Here we, here we go. Here we go. I don't know what this is going to be. Here's Simon. It's not, it's not a particularly weird question. I just think the way you talk about the game and the way you talk about your teammates, you might have a perspective here that other people maybe wouldn't have. Did you ever have moments where you were stood on the pitch and you just thought, this is crazy, or like, these lot are ridiculous, where, where you just sort of fell out of that moment of being totally in the game and just enjoyed what was happening in front of you? Like... You were stood, I think, next to Wayne Rooney when he scored that ridiculous volley against Newcastle. Yeah, I, I don't think you do until you take yourself away from it. And even now, like, I'm not a big watcher of stuff that's gone previously. I'm more of a live-in-the-moment type of person and you forget what's gone before. There's obviously certain elements that friends send you stuff from games gone by and you meet people, especially over here in America, who are... Man United fans or certain fans of clubs and go, oh, you scored against us or you did this against us. But I think Maisie will tell you, when you're in it, that's what you expect to do. You expect to be in that company, playing with them players. Like, when you come away from it and you think about what you're doing, if you had time to think about it, you'd probably be a shrinking violet and think, yeah. oh my goodness, I can't be living this. It'd be probably too much for you. So, actually, in the moment, like you say, you're fully immersed in what you're doing and actually... You should be part of it because if you ever feel like this is too big for me, then you've got a bit of a problem. Mm. Speaking of volleys, um, I'll bring that up. Your first Premier League goal was a peach of a volley against Norwich. Yeah. Do you remember that one? I do, yeah. We had a really young team playing that day, I remember. and we, um, We'd we been beat at Chelsea, so we'd not had a great start the week before. And that was my first real... That was my first real like day of thinking... It's second game of the season, we need to win. At any other club, that would not be even spoken about because, oh, it's second game of the season. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is like, we need to win. We've already lost one game. Mm. Man United don't lose six, seven, eight, nine, ten games in a season like every other club. There's like, there's a limit as to where you go to. So I think that, for me, that was the first sign that phew, we've got to win today. The pressure starts mounting losing one game at Man United. Never mind losing. You other clubs, you go, you can lose four on trot and then you go, oh, we've got to win this one because we've lost four. Maisie will tell you, you lose one at Man United and there's a... It's a crisis. We've got to win next... You've got, yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got to win next one. And I think that that was the first... Even though it was my first home game, that was the first game where I thought, we've got to win today. And we did. And like you say, it was great again. And it was a goal out of nothing, but... It was um, what a bad goal, though, was it? Yeah, it was a great goal. It could have gone. In, it could have gone anywhere. To Rose be honest, couldn't it? Let's be honest. But it's one of them where instinct takes over and it goes in, and everyone's happy, and you're off to the races. And like I say, it was the more important side of it is getting the three points because there's been players at at the club before who score amazing goals and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think the be all and end all at Man United's winning. Whoever's scoring, however you're playing. 
like winning is the formula that everyone's looking for. So as I say, it was nice to get off to a start and like I say, score a good goal. But the most important thing um, was getting the three points and making sure we didn't lose back-to-back games. Were your family all there that day at Old Trafford? No, just me. Just you? Uh, yeah. Um, I Obviously, I had people that used to come and watch, predominantly the European games. Uh, my family mm. used to still go and watch Leeds and were supporters at club, which I always loved because it was a case of that's what they'd always done. Yeah. That's what they continue to do. So I think, and I think that's important. If Leeds weren't playing and we had a European game on an evening, my mum and dad would come and watch. But like you say, people are true to the colours a lot of time. And as I say, when you're a player, sometimes you don't have that opportunity. Everyone goes, oh yeah, I support this club, that's what I'm going to play for. Well, it doesn't always arise and it doesn't always stay that way. But for a supporter, you can always be a supporter of one club. And I think that the nice thing for me was, and the nice thing for my parents eventually when we spoke about it afterwards, that it took a lot of pressure off them as well. Because when I did play for Leeds and it wasn't mm-hmm. going so great, mm. they're in an environment that is actually all all predominantly Leeds. Once I'd gone and the hysteria had calmed down and people got over it, probably a few weeks later after it all dies down, it's like, yeah, they get their own life back and probably they'd be able to talk about someone else rather than someone asking me, Dad, in Boozer, oh, what's going on at Leeds? Why are they struggling? What's all doing? Yeah. Blah, blah. Like, to continue always yeah. that sort of conversation. So I think looking back at that time, it was quite nice that I could go my separate ways and we could actually become more of a family together rather than everything being about the football club. Yeah. When you said took the pressure off, I thought you meant maybe your own relationship with them, like you turn up for a Sunday roast and there'd not be a plate because you'd have been sent off or something. <laughs> I still lived at my mum and dad's all the time that I played for Leeds. Oh the first time that I left was when I actually went to Manchester to live on my own. And my reasonings behind that is that you see a lot of young players start going out, getting involved in certain stuff. And not that my mum and dad ever, ever said anything about what time you're back doing that, but I just thought gives me that good grounding that at least I've got some like responsibility to be mm. back before like not going back too late before I've got training etc etc so I put a lot of my youth on hold or a lot of my teenage years my early 20s on hold just to concentrate solely on my football would they would, would they speak to you about that Al? If, you, if you did come back just to say like listen what are you doing coming in at three o'clock in the morning I'd never do it because I'd I knew it won't, It was like a subconscious thing that if we had a day off, obviously, I yeah. could go out on a Tuesday night if we were off a Wednesday, but it was like, it was just a subconscious thing for myself. Not that they ever demanded that of me. It was just like, I knew that I'd get to eat properly. That was the right thing to do. My mum would be cooking for me. So I knew, yeah, so I knew I'd be eating properly. And then, like I say, it was so close to the training ground as well. It was ideal. And I don't think I would grow up grown up enough then. I was just about to say it's not It's not like you were like 30 yeah you were what 22, 23 did yeah, you say yeah. which is not that unnormal for people to live at home and it was always nice because like you say nutrition had just become started becoming an yeah. important part of the game back then yeah who doesn't want their mum's food every night well it would ideal because like you say I can't be eating a yeah. bag of crisps every night rather than having my mum's cooking so it was a case yeah. of it made sure that like I say nights before games I was getting to bed I was getting fed properly so give me an advantage really and that was the first time I'd moved to you when I moved to Manchester was the first time I'd lived away from home so how did you cope then about cooking could you cook oh right, right. I used to t- I used to take it from canteen did you pack it up in little boxes and take it home no did you not get that option Maisie oh. <laughs> sometimes I did and then sometimes I'd um, 
sometimes I'd learn to cook myself and then sometimes I'd obviously go out into hail and yeah. have food, have dinner. And a lot of the time then, mate, like you say, we were always travelling. True, yeah. I was buzzing to go away for two weeks for pre-season because I knew I'd be not on my own, <laughs> stuck in house when I didn't know anyone. I'd have some company, I'd be getting fed, I'd be getting... I could get to sleep on time. <laughs> Typical Yorkshire lad, you know how tight we are, so it meant I didn't have to pay for grub and all that. You lot only ever breathe in. You're that tight. I know, yeah. Definitely, especially <laughs> nowadays. But yeah, that was... And then obviously I got to know Flex really well who just lived round corner. Trying to get him to cook was a bit of a challenge, so... It was a big growing up period for me, and it were it were perfect in every aspect, really. The club environment, obviously, the nutrition side of it, which probably what I was tapping into with Giggsy and Keeney at that time, because yeah. they were coming... They were a little bit older then, so they'd actually started to understand themselves how important it was to to fuel yourself properly and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Back to the football. Yep. What was it like when Sir Alex tried to move you into a midfielder, a more a, a traditional central midfielder, where before you'd like at Leeds at United you'd played as a centre forward or on the wing. Yeah. And how influential was Roy Keane in, in your development in that kind of position? It came a little bit out of blue, to be honest, and only because Roy was having a big problem with his hip. I don't know if you remember at the time, he was struggling with his hip and... We went to pre-season, we went to Asia in pre-season and it was just something that we tried because you play 45 minutes in pre-season and everyone changes and the yeah. team changes, etc, etc. And to be fair, Roy Keane's probably an impos- impossible to replace as a player um, and as a character and especially at Manchester United. I still don't think it's been done now and I think it's still been crying out for someone like a Roy Keane to be in the dressing room and be on the field as, as Roy was. Like I say, no one could ever replicate it. So we're trying to do as good a job as possible in a similar position. It wasn't like, yeah, you're going to be a Roy Keane. I'd never want to say, oh, I could do that job. It was a case of trying to learn and trying to understand the position that you're playing and do it to the best of your ability as a replacement for one of the best midfield players that there's ever been. Mm. So it was a difficult difficult task. Um, And like I said, one that... Arguably, I would never be able to do it to that level, and it would have been pretty much. I wouldn't have had to do it as much as I did have to do it if Roy would have been as fit as normal, and it'd have probably been a longer process to be able to do it rather than been thrust in just because of necessity rather than rather than ability wise. I was pro- probably put in there because I could tackle and I was brave enough to try and do it and physical enough to try and do it, not because my actual ability warranted to go into that position. So for me, I had a great relationship with Roy and it was it was sad how it actually ended in terms of that he left and because then it was a case of he'd gone and I couldn't learn off him mm. anymore. He went to Celtic and I couldn't learn the position off him anymore. Still to this day, I, I think we found Michael Carrick came and he was probably as good a replacement as you could possibly find for Roy at that time in terms of his passing ability. He was a different type of player but in terms of what Michael went on to do at the club, were great as well. So for me, it was a case of just try and do your job as well as you possibly could as a replacement for Roy Keane, if that is humanly possible. Like I knew myself there was no chance of being able to replace him, like for like, it's impossible. And I was probably more asked to do that job more just because of, unfortunately, because of Roy's injuries, rather than a necessity from the manager wanting me actually do that. I think in an ideal world, he wanted me to learn that role for a few years or at least a season and be able to put me in sporadically and take me out, play Roy in 
the big games and then just put me in there in certain cup games or whatever it was, just so I could start of start to learn the position. But it got it quickly got escalated just because of the situation. Unfortunately, I don't think there were any winners in that situation because I probably wasn't ready for it in terms of myself. I wasn't ready to go into that role and do it as well as I possibly could after a year of learning. And obviously, Roy left unceremoniously, which was a disappointment for everyone. Yeah, we can we get on to that in a second but one thing I'd love to ask you because you are someone who played with Roy Keane uh, watched him in training and then also had the pressure of Roy's out this week jump into centre mid and do his job recently there have been a fair few articles online and a bit of debate people saying and significant journalists saying that actually Roy Keane's uh, footballing attributes have always been wildly overrated and he was basically just a leader and had and had an aura about him which is why he was in the team but that his football was lacking. What would you say about that? I'd say watch Roy Keane be when he played for Nottingham Forest originally and then when he first came to Manchester United and then make your decision based on that because a lot of people forget and a lot of people have a... They don't have a broad spectrum on actually the development of Roy as a player and how he evolved as a player through necessity, through injuries, etc, etc. So for me, I don't even have to answer that question because... Like I said, you only have to look how good Roy Keane was as a box-to-box midfielder when he was a younger player and how good he was as a defensive midfielder towards the end of his career. And like you said, you could probably ask any player that's played with him, played against him. And if you asked that, I'd say 99% of them would all have the same answer for you. So for me, it's not a case of Roy just being a leader because that's so disrespectful to him as a footballer as well. And I think, as I say, Maisie, you don't play for Manchester United and be Manchester United captain just basically based on being a leader. That's such an unfair criticism as someone who's probably been one of the Premier League's greatest central midfield players. And I think that Roy learned that from Brian Robson in terms of how he used to play. Like For me, like I say, we don't need to answer that question because that's probably someone who wants to get a rise from from Roy or from somebody else yeah. but no one can throw that uh, analogy at Roy Keane as a player and I think that like you say you only have to go back and look how he was as a younger player how he was at Nottingham Forest a goal scoring midfield player which people forget because like you say they only look back at the last few years of his career it's like have a real look at his career for longevity and see what he achieved and see how good of a player he was like you say Maisie the game this, the game against Juventus if that's just someone playing as a leader or a character, like it's probably one of the best performances yeah. that you've seen from yeah. from a captain of Manchester United. And like you say, for someone to throw that, they forget about all the stuff that's gone previous. Absolutely. Roy was very complimentary about you um, throughout your career, but there did come that infamous moment about the... MUTV clip, which we spoke to Fletch yeah, yeah. about in depth too. And I'm sure you've been asked about it lots of times in your career. But what do you remember of that time? Um, was it a difficult time for you? You know, as players, did you feel like you knew the truth about what was in the video and it was blown up in the media? Or how, how did you feel at that time? We, um, right. The thing that people struggle to understand who are not involved in a dressing room environment or involved in the club as a whole, that your captain should be able to say the truth to any player. The manager, the captain, the experienced players should be able to say what they want to young players. And if the young players are not pulling away or they're not doing the jobs that they're supposed to be doing, then 
if the captain or the manager or the experienced players aren't telling them, then they're not doing themselves the justice that they should be doing. So I don't think any player in the dressing room had any problems with what Roy said to him or allegedly said on the MUTV video because I'm sure if Roy were there and he was at the game against Middlesbrough, he'd have said it to his face. Mm-hmm. So for me, it never, never bothered me one bit. The only disappointing thing is that you never, ever want to be criticised by your captain, no. which was the biggest thing that I took from it, that if I'm not pulling my weight and I'm not doing a good enough job, then I've got to sort myself out. And I did, because the week later, we beat Chelsea at Old Trafford 1-0. And that was an important game for us because that's the reaction that a captain wants to see from his players, is the motivation to see, right, are you going to hide when it comes to a big game, the next game after I've criticised you, or are you going to go out and put on a good team performance? And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. You were man of the match, weren't you? I don't know. I can't remember. It's a long you time were. ago, that. Yeah, no, you were. I know Fletch scored yeah. his header at the back stick, I remember it. it. But yeah. I think that that's... And Maisie will have had it before with captains that he's played for. Like That's their job as a captain, is to demand off every player. And just because Roy wasn't playing, don't mean that he can't demand. He's still the captain of the club. So... Mm-hmm. If you can't handle criticism, then you're in the wrong environment. Yeah. And I think that that's what, how you should look at it. Because as you get older and you become more of an experienced player, your job is to raise the standards of the younger players. And I think that that's one thing that we all accepted. And we'd all accept it if Roy were captain, Giggsy were captain, or when Nev was eventually captain, it's the same thing. It's leadership to a level where and Roy's an honest person. If you're good, he'll tell you. If you're bad, he tells you. You know where you stand. Mm-hmm. And that's the best thing. I think Darren Fletcher said it was almost... He said it was almost like a compliment because he, he knew that what that meant was Roy Keane believed he was better. And it meant he had exactly. more to give. And it made him feel confident that actually this is Roy Keane telling me I can do better than this. And it were proved right the week later. Because you're not telling me you can go and get beat 4-1 at Middlesbrough if you're 100% at it and then go and beat a Chelsea team who had been unbeaten for a long, long time under Mourinho and win 1-0 at Old Trafford. So, like you said, unfortunately with young players, you get inconsistency. But at Manchester United, you can't have inconsistency because that doesn't win your league titles. And I think that that's the, where it gets misled about the Roy Keane this, the Roy Keane that. It were like, Roy's well within his right to criticise mm-hmm. any player, which he would, whether you're an experienced player or a young player, but... He needed the young players to step up and be better. Hmm. That's what he needed from us. So he told us, which in no uncertain terms, we knew what his job was and he got the reaction that he wanted the week later. I, th- I think with Roy, with any player, you have standards. And as a captain, as a yeah. leader of your club, and it's the biggest club in the world, if your standards drop below the captain's or the, the captain's expectations, you deserve that. You deserve to get the biggest yeah. rollicking. And rightly so. Well, they're going to tell you, aren't they? Well, yeah. They're going to tell you, Maisie. Because he'll have had that through when he was coming through, when he first signed. He'll have had Brucey. Yeah. Pally, Robbo, Brian Robson, Dennis. Pally, yeah. yeah. Probably telling him all the time. So it's like, that's just the history of the club demands that. And I've, like you said, from being a young kid, like working with Eddie Grays and people who demand that mm-hmm. level, that criticism. I remember going to Arsenal and playing the FA Youth Cup and at half time would come in. And Eddie Gray's come up to me and gone, oh, your mum and dad here today? And I've gone, yeah, yeah. He said, they've drove all the way from Leeds to watch you perform like that. Sort yourself out. He wasn't a yeah. shouting, but no. it were like, 
it hit you and you're going, he's right. They've drove three and a half hours on a Tuesday night to come and watch me and I'm doing that. Yeah. It's like just a reminder of, come on, you're better than this. Your standards need to be better than this. This isn't anywhere you've been previously. This is Man United, I'm Man United captain and this is what I demand from you. So mm. I think any player that were criticised in that won't have a problem with it because no. should Man United ever get beat at Middlesbrough like they did? Probably never. So we deserve the criticism we got and we responded in the right way. Alan, what was your relationship with Sir Alex like? Lots of people call him a father figure. What, what was it like for you? It was great. As I said, he was probably... He had the characteristics of a lot of people I'd been around previously and obviously had mm-hmm. a close connection with people, coaches that I'd worked alongside when I was a younger player. A lot of the scouts and the people that sign players and look, they base a lot of it on characteristics. And he used to always say to me, Yorkshire people are like Scottish people, but without the charm. So he said we were very similar. <laughs> don't, know if that, don't know if that's true or not, Maisie, but I'll leave you to decide. And I think players who give everything that they've got, and hopefully I were one of them players, they're quite easy to look after in a dressing room because if I was sub, if I were playing, I'd give exactly the same. I'd never get my head down. I'd always just bat on, work as hard as possible to try and be as good as I could. And if you do that, then there's not much more any most people can ask from you, really. No. It were great in terms of if you were doing well and you knew you were playing well, that would be the time to critique. And if you were struggling that'd be the time to put your arm around you. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I had, some, I had some tough times, obviously, through my injury, et cetera, et cetera. And I speak to my mum and dad about it quite a lot, actually, and they were said, like, regardless of footballing stuff, like, the way that the club looked after me during that difficult time was, like, I couldn't have been anywhere better, to be honest. So Alex rung my mum and said, any time you need to get down to see Al, just ring me, I'll put a card on for you to come down to look after him. It really made you feel like, even through a time when you're not really important, that you were still very important, mm-hmm. which speaks volumes for how they do feel about you and the characteristics of everybody at the club. That was his gift, wasn't it? Yeah. You mentioned your injury there. Yeah. For anyone, maybe some people that are younger that are listening, so we're playing Liverpool, it's 2006. John Arnarisa lines up a free kick, and yeah. the result of that is uh, what Alex Ferguson calls one of the worst injuries he's ever seen. Yeah. For you, did you immediately know, like, had you realised the damage that had been caused? Did you know this is going to be, this is serious? Or was it just like, well, this is uncomfortable? It was strange, really, because it's like you're just going, your body just ticks over, you're going to shock, you're not really thinking about what's going to happen in the future. My biggest concern was that I was going to lose my foot. I remember, the only bit I remember of it is like, it's all a bit of a blur. I remember in ambulance going to hospital and doctor saying to, um, to our doc at the time, Doc Stone saying, we need to get blood flow to his foot. And I'm thinking, that does not sound great. I'm no doctor, but having to get (laughs) blood flow to someone's foot, I could have gone from being a professional footballer one day to having no foot next day, which is quite a worrying thought. Um, And it was something that I had to come to terms with very quickly, that I'd never get back to the levels that I was at previously. And I, I pretty much knew that straight away just because of when I'd spoke to people, like, the Sunday and the Monday... People's reactions, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you're in hospital for a long period of time and you're having two and three surgeries and you think... What did that look? What what was the actual extent of the injury? So I did my tib, my fib, and dislocated my ankle. And 
I were lucky that I didn't compound, so it didn't come out of the skin. Yeah. The actual, the dislocation of the ankle were obviously the worst thing out of it all because I remember we had to get a hand surgeon to do the surgery on my ankle just because there's so many like complications with like getting it back in place, the distance between your Achilles and all that kind of stuff. And basically, I ended up with probably 50, probably 60% like movement in my ankle in comparison to what it should be um and once someone tells you that and goes this is how long it's going to be this is the process you get your head around it because you're going right i've got 12 months to get to this stage and you just you approach it head on and like you said we've always been people who had a structure and had Mm -hmm. we know what we're doing day in day out and like you need that in your life and it becomes difficult when you've not got that and i think that for me getting back to some sort of level was was a big thing. And I, I knew I'd never get back to the levels that I were at previously. And that's why, like, it becomes such a difficult conversation because it's one when I knew I had to leave. I played last 10, 12 games and you come back and you're on a high, you play against Roma and et cetera, et cetera, and you, you're getting by on adrenaline, mate. It's like yeah. you're flying on adrenaline, but when you're going home at night, you're thinking... This is not how I was before. Do you know what I mean? It's like everything's so much more difficult to do. Like mm. even even the simple stuff, striking with a ball with a left foot, it's like can't really do it. You've got no power in it, you've got no confidence in it. And you end up like mentally you get everything back that like my ankle's strong, but I've not got the flexibility of it to turn, to push off. So you start to realise Initially, it was all right. I came back, scored against Roma. It's like, oh, yeah, great. But then the games after when you play Middlesbrough at home and you can't do stuff that you really want to do, you start thinking, I'm miles off it. Mm. And there's that horrible realisation that if you're 1% off it at Man United, you're probably gone. Like if you're 10, 12, 15% off it, which I obviously was, you're in a different world. And unfortunately... Like I said, I went to pre-season the following season and I just, I knew myself. Yeah, we went over to Hong Kong and to Macau and did pre-season and I was just like, the realism set in that, like, I wasn't at that level anymore. You know, amazing when you're in training and, like, the stuff that you could do previously and people are doing stuff and you just, like, you feel out of it. Yeah, I, I, I was similar, Ralph. I, I remember snapping me Achilles and I was out for seven, yeah. eight months. And it was exactly the same thing. Yeah. You come back and you're not you're, you're a million miles away. And I was like, there'd been people who'd been out injured. Ollie Gunnar had been out for a long, long time and come back. And I was like, I was miles off that. Yeah. I was miles off where he was. Henrik had just come in and I was miles off that. And I'm thinking, I'm a 26-year-old lad. I can't be behind 33, 34-year-olds. Mm. And not disrespectful to that, but my game were all about high intensity, pressing working hard like being physical being demanding on yourself and when you lose even more so for me the way that I played if I lost that little bit it was a massive part of my mm, of my game. game so I quickly sort of had to accept and me and the gaffer had chats for hours and hours about and I were like I don't want to go I'm not going and blah 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 and he were like not trying to convince me to go because he didn't want to convince me to go and he's conversation with me were I know you don't want to but you've got to look after yourself and make sure because if that ankle goes again that's it you're finished he was just basically perfectly honest with me speaking like 
we'd be speaking now. Yeah. Taking football out of the equation, you've got to look after your own future. You've got to go somewhere where you're going to play regular because you need to play more regular with your ankle rather than being in and out and mm-hmm. in and out. You'll never get started. And so that was unfortunately the conversation we had to have about about leaving to go to Newcastle. And I think that it's no disrespect to, to Newcastle because that's another great great club yeah. and a big club. But leaving Manchester United is heartbreaking for anyone, really, because you know that you've dropped down from that level that you're at to another level. And, mm. that, and mentally, that's difficult to cope with. Can you remember your... I mean, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of rumours and whatever it was, but you, your actual journey in the ambulance from Anfield to the hospital, there was a lot of discussion about... The Liverpool fans rocking the rocking the ambulance. I think that's been I think that's been over I think the press had a lot to do with that kind of stuff, just to have something to talk about. I I don't But that, but that never happened. Obviously you'd have been out, out of your head. From my you? point of view, mate, I don't yeah, I don't really remember much of it and I don't believe it did. No. I'm not sure how many people would have been out the ground at that time because the game True. was still going on. Yeah. Whether people were throwing stuff or whatever, but I don't think anyone would try to tip the ambulance over or if they'd done it, my ankle might have popped back into place. It could have done me a favour. <laughs> it could have come back on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, and do you know the big thing about that? And I always think about like life-changing things that happen to you. Like I was subbing that game because we had the Carlin Cup final. I was going to start the Carlin Cup final the following weekend. And I think someone went on and either went on, got injured. And I literally only went on for like five minutes. And they ended up being five minutes of injury time and... I went charging a free kick down that would have yeah. made no difference if I'd have just left it. But like you say, that's that's football, unfortunately. There's been loads of players who of have struggled because of certain injuries, etc., etc. And you've got to accept that and you've got to move on from it and make the best of make the best of it. And that's what I tried to do. Was that the most difficult time for you mentally as a footballer in your whole career? I think going through the injury process, I had great people. Like I say, I went to a great club, getting looked after by great people, working with Cleggie and the likes who were in the background every day. And the club still, I was trying to be a part of making sure I went to dinner at the right time so I could see lads and trying to be part yeah. of like the camaraderie. But you never feel completely mm-hmm. the same as you do when you're playing. I think the hardest thing, looking at it now, was the hardest thing mentally was having to accept the fact that you're not, at that level anymore Mm -hmm. and I think the quicker you can accept that you've got to try and move on from it and it's strange for me because I love football I love the environment I love being at all the clubs that I've been at but I very rarely ever go back even when I was still living at home I'd never come to United Games or whatever just because I think that like you don't want to always be looking back on, on what's gone on and I love chatting like this and being a part of like a club's history and doing stuff like that but going back sometimes more difficult because you know what you're missing mm. and I think that it's so like so difficult to be able to look back in past and think oh what might have been so I think you've got to live for like you say you've got to live for the moment and live for the time you're involved and like I say I love my clubs that I've all the clubs that I've played for and I've got fond memories of all of them and that's why like I say going back to clubs when you're involved in other clubs I used I found it difficult and I only went ever went back for one match um, to watch Man United when they played Rangers in Champions League. That were only Is that still to this day? You've yeah, been back once? Yeah, still the only game. No yeah, way. Yeah. 
and I'd love to come back again, but I don't like to ring ring somebody and say, "Oh, can I get some tickets?" To Maisie's come for got loads like, of season tickets. But it's never, it's I'll, never I'll, been, it's never I'll, been you, you get a ticket now, It's mate. a long commute. It's a long commute from Orlando, <laughs> but it's never, it's never been something I've done. I've only ever been back to one Leeds game since. I've only ever been to one United game since. I've not been back to a Newcastle game, no MK Dons games, and no Notts County games. So it's something that, like you say, obviously where I live now is a little bit more difficult to get there. But in terms of that, I always sort of tried to be loyal to the clubs that I was at and not always looking back on, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I used to play for so-and-so, I used to play for that. Even when I'm at Notts County, I said, when Kev, Kev Norman was my manager, it's like, just pick me based on where I'm at now. If I'm not good enough to be in team, don't pick me because I'm your mate. Just yeah. pick me based on how good I am right at this moment in time. If I'm sub, I'm sub. I don't care less. Like, I'm here because I enjoy playing and I want to get. Ev- I want to play as long as possible. And whatever level that may be, then so be it. So I'm going to take us back again. Yeah. After the injury, you should have been starting the Carling Cup final. You didn't get to start. I assume maybe you watched it at home. Did you know about the T-shirts? No, I didn't know about the T-shirts, no. And... Like I say, I'm emotional anyway at best of times in terms of playing-wise, all that kind of stuff. So that was... When I'd won it, that meant so... Like, it meant a lot more to me than people would probably realise just because I'd not been at the club for an extended period of time. It wasn't like I were a player who'd been there for 10 years. For Albert and the rest of the lads or whoever thought of what they were doing at that moment in time was was a big thing for me. Um, and some of the, I know that it would appreciate from obviously all my family because it doesn't just affect me personally it's Mm -hmm. everybody else and it was nice for me because it means that you actually made an impact on the people that were in the club and not just on the like you say the direct players that you're playing with but obviously the people around the club the kit people the dinner ladies like all the office staff etc etc so for me that was something that probably did bring a tear to me eye at that moment in time. If you're listening and you're not sure what we're talking about, when United won the Carling Cup, the players, before they accepted the trophy, put on special United shirts that had For You Smudge printed all over yep. them. Uh, and then and that's what like Roy Keane was wearing as he lifted the trophy. Uh, if you Google it, you'll see the pictures. I think it was Gaz, wasn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, because it, it would have moved on, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. And then, speaking of moving on, yeah, a few months, well, many months later... Uh, we play Roma and Maisie and Helen probably not so much but I've watched the highlights of that game so many times if I'm at a train station I'm on board I might just put them on so I know the commentary incredibly well and I'm sure other fans will and after about 17 minutes you score the second goal and Clive Tilsley says and now Giggs always oh, found a way through Alan And the forgotten man is back. Did you feel... I'd, I've always thought that was really cool. But now I'm talking to you, I imagine... Did you feel like a forgotten man? Were you aware that that's what he said? And how did it feel to, to score that goal and, and be scoring in a Champions League quarterfinal and be playing football? I've never actually listened to the commentary, if I'm being 100% honest. It's excellent. That whole game. What a joy. But that's what he says. As you score the goal, he screams. He's so excited, but he screams. Go on, Sam, and give the forgotten us. man is back. Simon, go on, give it <laughs> us. Hey, hey, Clive Tilsley is an icon. I can't Come do on. that. The, um, the, do you know the strange thing about that game? I wasn't going to start that game, and Louis Saha did his hamstring in Sunday morning in training. 
I came on against Portsmouth away briefly for like five minutes, I think. And Louis did his hamstring on, I'm sure it was Sunday morning, or it might have been Monday morning, one of the two. And Daz Nevin Giggs, he said to me, go knock on Gaffer's door and tell him you're ready to play. And I was like, really? They were like, yeah, just go and tell him that you're ready to start. So then you, I went up there, knocked on the door, Gaffer shouts come in, they're both in there, Gaz Nevin Giggsy, just waiting for me to go in. And so he'd obviously already told him that I was going to start the game, but they wanted me to just go in there so he could see me. And it was big for me, obviously. It was big for everyone, quarterfinal of the Champions League. A lot of people don't get to play in them in their career, never mind in such a... How big was it, the fact that Gaz and Giggsy have actually come up to you and said, listen... Go and see him. It was great for me because it meant that they got belief that I was yeah. ready to play, amazing. Do you know when you've had that doubt in your mind and you're going, yeah. I'm miles off it, you're thinking, they're thinking that I'm ready to go here. And I was still thinking it back in my mind. I don't know if I am. Mm. But even if it for that one game, it'd have been worth it. Well, that's your reassurance, isn't it? That you need off the lads. Yeah, that made me feel like I am ready. They give me that self-belief. And I don't know if the manager had spoken to before just to go, listen, tell him he's ready because I want him to play. And I've watched the game, I've not listened to the commentary, and basically that we're just running about through pure excitement. I've just been on a field there, <laughs> trying to close down every ball, like thought we were going to have an heart attack after 20 minutes because I was dead. <laughs> and it's like you're charging about trying to win tackles that you're not going to win, like trying to. I remember, um, I think it was Kivu, the centre half, had a mask on, and I thought to myself, I'm going to try and rip that mask off him when he's playing. Like, just stuff in your mind. You've been away for 15 months thinking, yeah. I might never get to play again. Like, this is my opportunity to try and do something that I might never be able to replicate. And, like I say, the performance of the lads was like, game as well. incredible. Yeah. Like, the atmosphere, there'd been trouble before game. It was like a proper, like, old-school European night. Atmosphere, people say about it, Old Trafford that night was unbelievable. Mm. But also, all of the goals were crazily good. Yeah, the like I think we were were it four at half time or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, four, I think four it nil was at half like, time. Yeah, yeah, just the goals, the movement, like everything. I remember Giggsy were playing like he were twenty one again, like left wing, just like destroying people. Cristiano scored his first ever European goal that night, which some people cannot believe it was his first one. Yeah, Michael scored the first goal. And like I say, for me that. now, it's like you look back and you're involved in a part of history, amazing. You know it, like the Champions League final. It was not as big as that, but in terms of for me to look back on and think that you're involved in beating one of Italian giants seven one mm. is something that, like you say, you can you can be proud of. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not as similar to you sunbathing on top of Champions I, I, League. That, that, that's all I would do, <laughs> mate. Sunbathing, don't worry, pal. Hey, why not? Why not? <laughs> But no, it was some of that, like you say, you look back all the time and to be involved in such great games is the reason why you signed yeah. signed for that football club. And when you did eventually leave United, yeah. further on down the line, did you then think about Sir Alex's words? But when he said to you, I know you don't want to go, but I think you yeah. have to. Did you ever look back at those words and think that was the right decision? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, because I'm, for me... Looking back, even though you want to pretend you're at that level, you know that you're definitely not. And mm -hmm. I think that I realised that in the pre-season when we were, and I think I spoke to Mickey feeling about it as well. And it's like, sometimes you need someone just to like put stuff in perspective, like what you've been through, like the injury process that you've gone through. And like you say, you've got to look at longevity 
and how long you can keep playing for. And unfortunately, it's happened to a lot better players than me that your time at a club comes to an end and you have to move on, whether that's through loss of form, certain situations or injuries, etc. It happens to it happens to most people, and you've got to accept that because that's what football is all about. Yeah. Um, Sun's coming out in Manchester. You can't I know, believe it. Not me. <laughs> just trying to turn into a ghost there. You couldn't see me. But it's um, yeah. I think it's something that comes to all of us, no matter how good a player it is. Like you've got to accept that at some point you've actually been at the top of your game, and whether that's th- and I think sometimes it's easy to accept through injury rather than just actual lack of ability or lack of form. And you left a Premier League champion, and then Newcastle, and then. You did uh, some coaching and playing at MK Dons, uh, yeah. player coach at Notts County, and also you managed for a game, didn't you? Yeah, we got beat 4-1, which was an interesting <laughs> scenario. Um, but no, I um, I love my time at all other clubs because once I'd, when I'd had my injury, I put my thoughts into, if this is it, what am I going to do afterwards? Mm-hmm. So I, when I did go to Newcastle and eventually moved to MK Dons, it was a case of how much can I learn from the environment, what it's like at a League One level, what it's like at a League Two level. So you actually look through and you've been at the top of the scale and unfortunately you end up at the bottom of it like and vice versa. So it's a case of you learn every different situation. And I enjoyed every aspect of that. And for me, it was... Um, I learned more about the business side of football than at NK Dons, a chairman he's a great guy there and he put all his own money into the club etc etc so you can speak to people like that and understand their background of football and it's obviously on a minuscule scale in comparison to what Manchester United is or a Premier League club is but you also have a club in MK Dons who uncharacteristically are probably as hated as Manchester United for a lot of different reasons by a lot of different people which made it quite a good club to go to because all clubs that I've played for most people haven't liked them which I quite like um, and it was interesting how the club had started obviously it had gone through the franchise etc so it had a quite of a hint- interesting story and then I signed for Notts County who also had a great history as well so all the clubs that I've played for and I've been fortunate to play for clubs that on different levels have all had great histories or different histories as well it feels like uh, we're sort of coming to the close, which is, which is sort of perfect because there's plenty left in for part two when we come out to Orlando. Definitely. Bring your suntan cream. <laughs> we haven't even mentioned that your first touch in English football was a goal against Liverpool. Yeah. Um, seems a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's strange now because, like I say, Leeds' first game this, this season's away at Anfield yeah. as well. Uh, it was funny because my first game at Anfield... I scored my 50th goal for Leeds at Anfield and my career virtually came to an end at Anfield, let's be honest with it. So when I look at Anfield, for me, it's got so many different... The joy, the joy, then the disappointment. Um, and if, I think I always speak to kids now in the environment, in a world, and I always say, I think players always get an opportunity. It's just what you do with that opportunity. If I hadn't have scored at Anfield on that day, who knows what would have happened. But if I also hadn't have broke my leg there, who knows what would have happened. So you've mm. got to take the positives and the negatives. And people say Yorkshire people are very sort of boring or very like mundane how they are. I think that helps us in a way because 
we don't never get too excited and never get too despondent. So we try and just go along, like you say, and take every <laughs> high and low on the chin and just take it as as good as humanly possible. And I think that as a Yorkshireman, yeah, like you say, it's a case of like you say, your first goal you can get carried away, but once you start, once you have your first goal, it's a case of you've got to back it up. Then I think how you start gives you that momentum you've got to produce you've got to produce because people expect you to produce i look back with fond memories and i look back like you say with memories of playing for some good clubs some great clubs that like you say have been some of the biggest clubs in english football um and some of the most best supported clubs which for me is probably one of the most important things to play for a leeds and newcastle and a manchester united who demand the intensity that they support with for me, if you're asking people, did you enjoy what you were doing? I loved every minute of it. And you conquered the North. I mean, those are the three big clubs, aren't they? <laughs> well, for me, it's a case of I look back with some disappointment that I could not go to achieve what I wanted to achieve at a club like Manchester United because you want to leave there, leaving a, a legacy or a history of being one of their great players and been involved like I say I, I was surrounded by some of the best players that the club's ever had which I take as a blessing being able to play with some of them players as Maisie will also when you look back Absolutely. and say about some of the players you played with or played against you tell some of the kids now and they go can't believe you played with so and so or you're a yeah. teammate of so and so or you're a teammate of David May they can't believe it it's like <laughs> you look at it and it's like I don't think you realise that when you're involved in it. It's only when you take a step away from it and obviously move away from the country as I've mm. done. You actually, people, I see people walking around Orlando all the time. US-based people, Manchester United shirts. Like, it's growing all the time. Like, we get three games every Saturday morning. 7 o'clock game, sorry, 7.30 game, 10 o'clock game, 12.30 game. There's more games here on TV than there is back, on, back in England which shows you just how much how much the game's growing. And for me to, like you say, be part of the history of five great clubs, but three big clubs that are all Premier League clubs again now, it's nice for me to look back on and think that. You've not done bad. And hopefully, Maisie, like you say, the most important thing we can take away from it is that you, as I say, you're always around the club. You're respected by the people there. You're always welcome to go back there. And I hope that's the case for, for myself at, all the clubs that I've played for, because at the end of the day, like you said, most lads who played for the club are just normal lads yeah. who were fortunate enough to, like you said, be good or work hard enough to get in a position that most people just dream of. So for me, like you said, to take away, when people say about you finishing playing and say, oh, he was a good lad, that's just as important as saying he was a good mm -hmm. player. Absolutely. Like, that's, what I'd, that's what I'd want to take away from it, that people would go, yeah, we're a good lad in. Yeah. That's, at the end of the day, that's all you want people... that. The acknowledgement of the people who know you is all that you look for. 100%. Brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. We always ask our guests for a recommendation, who they would recommend for our next podcast. Our producer, Matt, is elbowing me to say, uh, virtually elbowing me to suggest Roy Keane. Nobody wants to ask him, though. No? Do you think he'd go on, Roy? I'm sure he would. It'd be good if we get him. Who, who would you recommend? Who would I recommend? I don't know who you've not had. Well, there's about 50 we've had. Who would give us good stories? Roy Carroll. 
Oh, that, no one has suggested Roy Carroll. Do you know what? Johnny actually said... Johnny's not done one, Helen, so his recommendations don't count. <laughs> he did. He was like, Roy Carroll will be really good. I will be, I will be right not counting. Well, I don't know if he'd be able to do... You might have to do a late-night version with Roy. <laughs> when Roy had left to go play in Greece or wherever he went, I saw that all the producers went to Roy to do that after the lights have faded or whatever, so why don't we yes. recreate that and you can come to Orlando? I know, I think now so. Now we're talking. Smudge, it's a deal. Sounds great. Absolutely, pal. Absolutely. <laughs> we, can a, we can get a sticks out and have a knock on golf course as well. Oh, absolutely. Can oh. That's all Maisie needs. <laughs> I'm excited. I think Roy would give you a bit of good feedback. What yeah. about Tim Howard? Have you had Tim on? No, we should get them on at the same time. Make them compete like they did in their career. <laughs> And then put Edwin on just to take both of places. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. Honestly, that was absolutely brilliant. No, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Nice to see you all. And brilliant, now. Absolutely brilliant. Good luck with everything. Thank you, Adam. See you later. Take care of yourself. See you later. Good luck this season Bye. as well. If I don't see you all before or hear from you, hope it goes well. <sighs> so there it is. That was our chat with Alan Smith. Lowe's to go through there. Uh, Roy Keane, I suppose, one of the big talking points from that, very honest and open about his admiration for Roy Keane and how hard it was to try and sort of semi-fill his boots. I thought he was brilliant. I thought he spoke very, very well of the club, his affiliation with Leeds and the, the rivalry they had between them, but also the love he has for Keane, of how much you know he, he looked up to him, looked up to the senior pros, asked them, mithered them about all sorts of aspects of the game and... Just a, just a top, top lad. From the first answer, I was just yeah, you were hardly blinking. Blown away. Yeah. yeah. It was just Helen, brilliant. You're, yes. You're a mother. I am. You have a, a son. You mentioned him in the podcast. If he... Uh, have I never mentioned him before? No, no, no. I'm saying you mentioned <laughs> him to, to Alan. It came up. If he goes on to play for Wolves... Where are you going to be on a Saturday afternoon? Are you going to be watching Eli playing for Wolves or are you going to be at Old Trafford? Well, do you know what? That actually happened whenever Johnny what, left. What, Eli's United. playing already? <laughs> yeah. Nine months old, he's made his debut. Whenever um, Johnny left United to play for West Brom, his we had a box and his dad actually kept it on for a year. And when he played for Sunderland as well, his mum and dad used to go and watch United. Did they? I, I found that really surprising. It's closer, isn't it? But then I, <laughs> I've never played professional football. I don't have any children, so... Might as well get the money's worth out of the box as well. Well, yeah, pay for it. <laughs> well, I thought that was a great podcast. Uh, lots of you asked for it, so hopefully you all enjoyed it. Um, and that was Alan Smith. I loved it. I loved it. Brilliant. One of my, my favourite ones we've done, actually. Loved Absolutely, it. yeah. And Roy Carroll. Good recommendation. Roy, Roy Carroll is going to be in the uh, pipeline, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Guys! Any emails? We must have millions. We do. We've got loads. Come on then. Let's crack on now. Dear HMS podcast, just got off the Gordon Hill podcast and was completely blown away in so many ways. I am disciplining myself to listen to the podcast in order. Good idea. As there is no way to tell what delights will be contained from just the title or the name of the guest. So that hour or so with Gordon Hill really was such a pleasure. He is five years younger than I am. So it was good to hear what it was like coming through for him. Having Hill and Koppel as dangerous wingers at that time meant United's pitch was way too wide for the opponents to cover with Stuart Pearson always ready to gobble up opponents' lapses of concentration. Loved hearing the things he misses regarding the way the game is structured for TV now versus the time when we were as fans. We're listening for somebody's 
Transistor Radio walking back after the game, waiting for the reading of the results and the mental arithmetic of where that left us in the table. Glory, glory, Man United podcast. That's from PRP. Lovely email. Thank you so much indeed. That was really nice. I've got one here from Nicholas Mills who says, Hi there, Helen, Sam and David. Been listening to the podcast all through Corona. Uh, don't know if that means he had it or if he's talking about the pandemic. Hopefully Nicholas is fine and he just means this this whole situation we're all in. Only heard the Peter Crouch pod before. Yours and it totally stands up. In terms of guests, I would love to hear from someone from the class of 92 who didn't make it, like Keith Gillespie, for example, which we have already done. So you can listen to it. Uh, haven't heard the Ben Thornley one yet either. Tell you what, Nicholas, I mean, you've asked and we've already done two of them. So well done. What an <laughs> us. Uh, also, we know about the unforgettable David May, but what about a podcast of Sam and Helen as guests? To be fair, I would love to get to know more about them, especially since they make the podcast so good with their enthusiasm. Cheers very much, Millsy. What do you reckon about that, Helen? I'm so boring. Like, I am the most boring person ever. I don't like talking about myself, so mine would be horrendous. Yours would probably be good, Sam. It wouldn't. It's just all the... I mean, you hit like... You've got like eight degrees. One. You've loads to talk about. I have an unnecessarily accurate memory for useless things. Like, say, talking to Alan Smith. Oh, I saw a picture of you in a magazine from 15 years ago when you were on a BMX. And he was like, yeah, you must think I'm a stalker. Yeah, it was a bit weird, that. One more email then. Natalie Rimmer says, Hi, loving the podcast, guys. You crack me up. Listen to them all over lockdown. Especially love the old stars, Brian Robson, Pallister. Stupid question, but what's the chances of ever getting Sir Alex Ferguson on? Cheers, Natalie. That is one we are working on. I was thinking about it earlier. We don't want that to be on Zoom, though, either. No, we want to sit in like, his house no way until that can he be... makes us leave. <laughs> okay, we can't just invite ourselves to his house. I spot. can. We can try. We just go there. I don't know where he lives. <laughs> and he can oh, it'd be you. so good. It's the dream, isn't it? It's the absolute dream. It but we need dream. to have the dream because otherwise if we do it, have we then peaked? That's the goal. Mm. Well, thank you for all of your emails as always. We'll get some more read out next time. Um, but for right now, that's it for another week. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send us an email, you can just get in touch. Email us unitedpodcast at manunited.co.uk utdpodcast at manutd.co.uk You can find that address in the notes. Uh, we love it if you would subscribe and rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. That's really helpful to us and we do love to read your reviews. And if you screenshot them and send them to David May, he will reply to you. He will. And if he doesn't, send it to me and Helen and we'll sort it out. It's not okay that he behaves this way. He's such a diva. I'm terrible at replying. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you all next time. Uh, goodbye. Take care. And au revoir. That nice. I felt like I needed a third and I didn't have anything. <laughs> Cheers, troops. See you soon.